We talk about crime, violence, trauma, radio, podcasting, and much more. This is a very special episode of the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast where I get to be a guest. Yeah, I don't do it often. On the Florida's Fresh Mix podcast. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk radio show. In the Law Enforcement Talk radio show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. You can find us on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page. The Florida Podcast Network, the voice of Florida. This is Gerard with episode number 53 of Florida's Fresh Mix on the Florida Podcast Network, a random mix of Florida's freshest personalities. Listen in, y'all. Hey there. Welcome to Florida's Fresh Mix Podcast. My name is Amber, and I am the lead content producer of the Florida Podcast Network. And with me is your host, Gerard. Gerard, how's it going today? It's going very, very well. How's it going with you? Likewise, I can't complain. It's a pretty rainy day here in South Florida, but you know what? It's not hot. So we love that. I try not to complain. I do love the sun, but we get much more of it than most people. And so, you know, you can't, you can't get too greedy with God, you know? True. <laughs> very true. <laughs> I think summer is here. I feel like that's, that's like the true Floridian way of being able to tell summer has arrived when it's consistently raining in the afternoons. So welcome to summer, people. Exactly. You want to get something done, but get it done early in the day. That's what you learn. So Yeah. Yeah. You learn that real quick. Okay. <laughs> anyways, we are veering off into the weather. Wow. We talk about the weather a lot on the show. Yeah. Well, it is, <laughs> it's Florida. <laughs> it's Florida. It's weird. Okay. So today's guest is someone very special. He is a former Baltimore police sergeant, and he goes by the name of John J. Wiley. First of all, that's an amazing name. Second of all, when you guys hear this man's voice, you will understand that it was made for radio and podcast. A hundred percent. Which is what he does. He's super friendly. He's very conversational, and that makes him the perfect host for his radio show. It's called Law Enforcement... It is syndicated on over 100 radio stations across the country. And Gerard, you guys get into all of that and what it, what it means to be a syndicated radio show and how he got his podcast to radio. So it's, it's very fascinating, especially if you guys are podcasters yourselves. Shout out to the indie podcasters. Hey. That's right. Gerard, real quick. What did you enjoy most about this interview without giving us a sneak peek of your fresh take? Which people, if if you don't listen all the way through these episodes, you miss out on Gerard's fresh take. So without spoiling much from that, tell me some of your favorite moments or what you enjoyed most about talking to John. Well, I liked talking to John because he's at the top of his game and he's, he's done it 
full circle. I mean, he's he started uh, with his syndicated radio show, uh, moved to uh, being a you know I could I could I think it's safe to say a professional podcaster, um, and uh, he's he practices what we always preach, which is he's doing a podcast about you know a topic that is very near and dear to him. And now he's come full circle by being a radio and podcasting instructor. And it was just so, even though he was the guest, I felt like I was the student and I was learning from one of the best in the game. And it was just fascinating to to hear that kind of expertise coming at me, especially with, with uh, like you, you've mentioned before, a voice that's totally made for radio. So he's got the voice, he's got the know-how, and he's got the you know, the credibility and he's got the, um, he's just so honest. It's, it's just, it's just fantastic. You'll, we, when you hear the cadence in this guy's voice and, uh, how forceful in a good way, how forcefully he makes his points and he admits when he doesn't know, you know, maybe a statistic or something here and there. And it's just refreshing to have someone really give you the straight dope. Yeah, no, I mean, you said it perfectly. He just gives it to you straight he doesn't beat around the bush. He says it how he means it. And it is refreshing to hear. And also, if you if you are questioning this man's credibility behind the mic, his show started in 2017, and he already has over 500 episodes, which is just super impressive. I mean, Gerard, what's it going to look like when we hit 500 episodes? That's going to be in like five years. i don't know but uh you know goals goals Goals. yes our inspiration (laughs) over here um but before we jump into this great conversation i do want to give a trigger warning john briefly mentions suicide sexual abuse and ptsd so just keep that in mind while you're listening all right gerard one of our favorite parts of the show is talking about your favorite nonprofit organization. Give it to them, Gerard. Go, go, go. Amber, not only am I going to share about my my favorite uh, organization, I see what you did there with go, 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 go. I love that. But I've also got some great news to share. So first of all, as our devoted Fresh Mixers already know, for the past three years, I've proudly served on the board of directors of Guitars Over Guns. GoGo is an incredibly impactful nonprofit organization that offers students from disadvantaged communities in Miami, Chicago, and Los Angeles a powerful combination of music education and strong mentoring relationships with professional musicians to help them overcome hardship, find their voice, and reach their potential as tomorrow's leaders. Please head to the show notes for more information and most importantly, to donate, donate, donate. And guess what? Nonprofit organization was featured on CBS Mornings just this past week with President Obama no way. in the house in GoGo's Haven Studio in Chicago. President Obama live in full effect. Wow. Okay, you told us about Obama on the last episode, but I didn't know they were featured on CBS Morning. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. This just happened. It was a. It was. A, there were two great excerpts, and uh, I really love it. And uh, I will. I will send it to you. We can. We can add it to the show notes as well. Yeah. The because because uh, I've got the um, the YouTube clips. So that would be great. And also, guys, one more thing. If you wouldn't mind taking just a few seconds of your time to go on Apple Podcast and rate and review this show, we would really appreciate it. 
And we would love to hear your feedback, any critiques that you got for us. We are all ears. So let us know. All right. All right. And thanks in advance. Okay, guys, it is time to jump into today's conversation with your host, Gerard, and Mr. John J. Wiley, the host of Law Enforcement Radio Show. Hello, Fresh Mixers. Now, today, I've got to say, I'm a little bit nervous about this one, but for all the right reasons, because I'm interviewing someone who has extensive experience in podcasting. This is a retired Baltimore police sergeant. He's also a full-time FM music radio DJ. He's been doing that for almost two decades. And he's the host of the Law Enforcement Radio Show, which is syndicated on 103 radio stations around the country. Folks, this is John J. Wiley. I am so happy to have you here, John. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me as a guest on the show, Gerard. Very much appreciated. Oh, the, the pleasure's all mine. So the, l- let me start off by asking a stupid question. How's that? <laughs> there are no stupid questions. Remember, uh, the answer to every question that's not asked is no. <laughs> there you go. I like I like that. I like that. Um, this is so impressive to, to, to hear about the 103 radio stations that have syndicated your, your show. When I think of syndication, the first thing that pops into my mind is like Seinfeld, right? So, you know, it's, it's a show that's no longer making live weekly episodes, but then, you know, they play it on a channel and, you know, the, whoever gets paid for it on a regular basis and whatever, you can still watch old episodes. Is the word syndication in the radio context, is that similar? What's, what's the difference or is, or is it basically the same? It's very similar, Gerard. What it means is you're not centralized to, to a certain time frame. So uh, my show is owned by me. I have a silent partner. It's not owned by any radio corporation I work with. And all the affiliate stations can run the show any time of day or night or any of the day of the week that they want. Some stations run it a couple times a, a week. So uh, syndication means basically it's decentralized so everybody can run it. Uh, the only thing we ask for is that that official affiliates, because they get market exclusivity, they just fill out some paperwork and they can drop us after 30 days. But that's the the whole thing. And it's pretty similar with radio and television. We think of syndicated shows. Some are distributed by uh, big networks, like in the podcast world. Wondery is a big network. NPR, by the way, National Public Radio is one of the biggest players in the podcasting space in the United States. Mm-hmm. So if you were an employee and they own your show, then they call the terms of when it's played. With syndication, I have Talk Media Network. They syndicate my show. They put it up on satellite, and anybody can play it any time of day or night they want. Okay, fantastic. Now, you're you're a retired uh, Baltimore police sergeant, but now you're in West Palm Beach, Florida. You moved here in 1997. What brought you from Baltimore to – well, first, what brought you to Baltimore, and then what brought you from Baltimore to the Sunshine State? Well, I, I grew up as a Navy brat, Gerard. So uh, I was born in New Jersey. I lived in Spain. I lived in Tennessee. And I spent most of my childhood, formative years, in Norfolk, Virginia Beach area of Virginia. That's where my dad was stationed. And, uh, and I went to Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia for college. I didn't graduate because I, I majored in drinking. And I got <laughs> pretty much – I wasn't asked to leave. I came up with the idea it was a good idea to leave. And then a little bit while later, my dad retired from the Navy and he moved to Southern Maryland. And I was like, I'm going there. But around that time, uh, probably actually the late high school years, I wanted to be a priest. 
and I, I really wanted to get into public service. And for many reasons, I didn't have, feel I had the calling, the, the vocation to go into the priesthood. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to become a police officer. And at that time, very few people were hiring, but Baltimore was in 1980 when I started. So I went there for little over 11 years when I got hurt and retired, and it was one of the best times of my life. It was also one of the most violent times of my life, and far more violence than most people can imagine, to be totally honest with you. Right. I mean, I, I one thing I've gleaned from as a, a recurring theme on your podcast is kind of the PTSD or or just the lingering effects of some of the things that you see and experience to, you know, to the, to use your own words, things that you've seen that you purposefully try to forget. Um, do you want to expand on that? Well, originally, uh, when I started the podcast, I was very specific. And this is in March of 2017. I partnered with uh, Law Enforcement Today because they had a really big Facebook page, and they would allow me to post episodes of my show organically on their page. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to focus on one particular area. I wanted to focus on trauma, the effects of trauma on police, other first responders, military, and th- they're also their family members. Uh, and then a radio station heard it and said, can you do a radio version, which meant we needed to expand a little bit. So now we feature either investigating crime, kind of doing what investigation discovery channel does for television, the reality of investigating certain types of crimes. But I'd say about 70% of my guests are talking about trauma they went through, often crime-based, not always. And they're either uh, retired police, firefighters, military, victims of crime, their spouses or survivors talking about what happened to them, what they went through, them and their families, and most importantly, what they did to build their lives afterwards. Because that's the thing where I think a lot of people need to hear there's light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, so it doesn't matter if it's a first responder or military or whatever their walk of life. There's a lot of inspiration in people's stories. But the problem is there's not a lot of platforms for them to tell that story. And that's been my secret sauce was their stories and letting them tell their stories and their experience uh, very quickly. Many people approach me daily. Uh, they're experts in certain fields. And I tell them, I, look, expertise is great. No one cares. What's your story? Tell us your personal experience. And that's where the power is. Right. So get get me get it. I want to get a bit more into the weeds about how the show actually came about. You you, you just randomly got a call one day. Well, the, the, the podcast first, it, it was very specific why I wanted to do this. And it's because in the, our, our military veterans uh, and also our first responder world, we have a tremendous suicide problem. And we've had that for decades, since before I was policing in 1980. And Joseph Wamba, who's a, a famous novelist, he was LAPD. He talked about it back then and in the 50s and 60s, how it was a big problem. So I wanted... Uh, the spouses, and I wanted the the person who was affected by all this trauma to understand that there's things they can do and they can have a better life, a much better life. And that was my approach. The minute a radio station said, and I know what episode it was, it was an Auburndale, Florida police officer who was shot multiple times on a 911 hangup call. Um, and she crawled to a neighbor's garage and they shut the door on her and and hid. And people couldn't find her. And we had the audio tape from the 911 dispatcher. So you could really feel it. It was horrifying to hear it. And uh, that was the episode that got the radio's attention. 
But the minute that it went to radio, I knew I had to expand. And, and this is something I say all the time. You're in South Florida. I'm in South Florida. We have Interstate 95. Interstate 95 runs basically north and south. It, it varies a little bit. In portions of, of South Florida, it's five lanes wide, six lanes wide. Then you go a couple hours north and it's two lanes wide. So what I had to do was I had to stay like I-95, stay north and south, but expand my lanes of travel from two lanes in each direction to six. <laughs> that, that, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, that's a great analogy. Um, you mentioned suicide and I guess this is out of complete ignorance. I don't, uh, I don't have any family or close friends that are in law enforcement. So when you mentioned suicide, my intuition is that, you know, from the things that, you know, uh, people see, uh, whether it's homicides or, uh, things dealing with children, abuse of children, all, all kinds of heartbreaking things that a beat cop might see, uh, on a regular basis. Am I, am I getting warm or do you I see think you're other- very warm. Here's, here's, uh, and I'm not an expert in this, but uh, just based I said on the stories that you've, you've heard. Yeah. There's a, a few things that seem to be a, a recurring theme that happen when these deaths by suicide occur. And I'm, I'm use police as example, because that's the background I come from and I can speak to my own experience. When you encounter nothing but trauma, 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 and you have got adrenaline dump after adrenaline dump after adrenaline dump, two things happen eventually. And when you go to the academy, it doesn't matter when, when you go, they issue you, and here's the analogy, they issue you the state-of-the-art backpack. Now, the, the backpack I was given in 1980 doesn't compare to the ones that are issued today. However, every call for service you go to, you're going to pick up a stone and throw in that backpack. It could be some are pretty really big, some could be very small. However, if you don't find a way to dump that out and at least level it a little bit and and get some equilibrium, there's going to come a point where you're going to throw a pebble in that backpack and the whole thing's going to fall apart. And when that occurs, some things happen with PTSD, and it's a term I don't like, the disorder part. I think it's post-traumatic stress injury is more accurate uh, explanation. Some things happen. Depression can occur. Also, a lot of self-medicating with alcohol, trying to dull the symptoms so people can sleep, things of that nature. Anger and irritability can become a real issue because they can't calm down. They can't relax and they just become physically, physically tired. So with that, some other things often occur. You've got substance abuse. Usually it's alcohol. Uh, That can lead to disciplinary problems at work and marital problems. Or relationship problems. And when all those hit at the same time, quite often the end result is suicide. Uh, and because in these same people, their whole life is based around helping other people solve their problems. They think they should be able to solve their own. And they don't realize they're trying to solve the problem with the problem. And the last thing is, just from my experience, I tell people, if you want to go to policing or firefighting or EMT or whatever it might be, my hat's off to you. It's a, an honorable profession. However, be proactive about it. Uh, we have dentists we see every year. We have general practitioners, doctors we see every year and get a physical. Get yourself someone who's trauma trained. It's a social worker or a psychiatrist or whatever, and see them once a year just to be proactive. See someone once a year, someone that's, that's trained in trauma, uh, that knows trauma and, and experienced in it. Find some of the things that can help you deal with this better. Because uh, a part of the problem, a big part of the problem is so many of these departments, when they send you to see someone, then it's a disciplinary issue. Then it's a matter of record. 
and civil liability. And they may not always be the best. Uh, sometimes they're just there collecting a paycheck. So I'm not saying that to be negative. I'm saying be responsible on your own and protect yourself because everybody gets dinged up. You do this line of work long enough, you're going to pay the price and your family's going to pay a price and everybody near and dear to you is going to pay a price. So it's up to you to be proactive about trying to mitigate the effects of this stuff. Right, right. Uh, well, if, if you were a boxer, you'd uh, see your doctor every time you got injured. Right. Well, it, yeah, here's a great example, Gerard. And I tell people this, look, uh, let's look at two NFL players. One's retired. Uh, Tom Brady, the other one, Patrick Mahomes, all right? Both really top of what they do. And they're really, really great professional athletes. They have 10 other team members they rely upon to do their job. They have position coaches. They have offensive coordinators. They have the head coach. They often have sports physical trainers for their physical needs. They often have uh, psychological trainers or sports psychologists to help them as well. So if they can rely on all these people to get better at what they do, why can't people like me say, look, the answer can't reside with me. I got to find someone else to help. Exactly. Um, I'm from the Caribbean and I know that in the Caribbean, there's kind of uh, this is obviously a, a stereotype, but there's like this general culture. There's a resistance to like admitting mental health and, or even more so like seeking out like uh, mental health assistance, uh, you know, whether it be a psychiatrist or social worker, all the things you're talking about. And I'm wondering if uh, part of the problem might be, uh, for lack of a better term, a sense of machismo among cops that they just don't want to seem uh, weak or, you know, it kind of takes away from their manhood to seek help in that way. Do you think that that's a factor or am I just making this up? That might have been true a long time ago. I don't think it is anymore. Uh, I don't think it's a big factor. And the reason being is you have so many females in law enforcement now, and you have so many people of different uh, uh, walks of life, different faiths, different ethnic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, all those things come into play. What I think a big part of this is, and, and I'm not saying I'm faulting the cities. When I say city, it could be county or state as well. The moment an officer has a disciplinary problem, uh, let's just say he shouts off and or he or she mouths off to someone after, and they've had a sterling reputation. If they turn around and say, you know, I'm having problems with stress, I'm having problems with my mental health, all of a sudden, two things happen for civil liability. You're a lawyer. You, you, you can speak this better than I can. The cities are very much aware that they can't have that person on the street because of civil liability. So immediately, their police powers are suspended. Mm-hmm which is in itself not a big deal. However, some of the backwards agencies will suspend their people without pay. Then here's what happens. If you are a married officer and you have children, all of a sudden, your spouse and your children no longer have health insurance, no longer have all the things they relied on for their daily needs, and your pay is gone. So that, I think, is a bigger factor. And we as an industry have gotten much better dealing with the big things, the critical incidents. We've gotten much better dealing with those. The problem is, I think as an industry, we are ignoring the daily grind of what this does to people. And eventually, all of us pay the price. Back in my day, the way we dealt with things is you get a case of beer and you go to a park a lot, and you drink, and you talk. And that's what we did. Um, and, and to some degree, that helped. However, the alcohol became an issue for a lot of people. Um, and 
quite often the bosses would say, you know, I'm buying a beer tonight. You go have at it. We had a saying in Baltimore. They had a different language and different uh, dialect and slang they use up there. And the term was, you're Baltimore police. Suck it up and do your job. You can lick your wounds afterwards. And that was the mentality. Uh, And I'm fortunate. I think that's a mentality for a lot of our agencies nowadays. It's like, look, they're all understaffed. They're all working their, you know, what's off. uh, And they're getting exposed to more and more trauma. And if someone turns around and says, I'm having a tough time dealing with this, you're probably going to get the response of, unless it's a major critical incident, suck it up and do your job. Now, is there kind of a tension between being so forthright? I mean, your, your podcast d- deals so uh, intimately with these issues. Do you think that uh, by exposing it and being so, let's just say, brutally honest about, about these, the ramifications of, uh, and, and the kind of effects that it can have on you uh, mentally, psychologically, physically, um, that it could be a deterrent to, you know, for people that want to join the force? They might have a second look and be like, well, maybe I don't want to go through all that. Well, if that's the case, then they probably shouldn't go into it, to be totally honest with you. Uh, I've never never experienced any negative blowback whatsoever from what I do. One of my daughters was thinking about being a police officer, and I really had an honest heart-to-heart talk with her and said, do you really want to do this? Because you saw what it did to me. You saw what it did to our first, uh, your mom and me and our first marriage. And you all paid a price, you and your sister as well. You need to ask yourself an honest to goodness question. Can I deal with this myself? And if the answer is no, then don't do it until either you can or uh, you realize that this was an uh, occupation that was never meant for me. Well, I, I think that makes a lot of sense because people can go in uh, with their eyes completely open and, and make a decision, uh, a, a more clear-eyed decision. And perhaps that kind of, uh, I don't want to say, you know, weeds out people that aren't ready, but at least get, makes them think about it twice. And maybe you get better results as far as the people who actually decide to take the leap. Well, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? But the big problem <laughs> we have, Gerard, and it's, it's happening in South Florida as well and throughout the state uh, and throughout the United States is... There is a, a, a shortfall when it comes to recruiting new officers. And then there's a, the, the danger of lowering standards and taking people you wouldn't normally hire. Because on the other end of the spectrum, you have people that ha- are experienced, that really are good at their job. They're either resigning or retiring the first chance they get because they don't want to deal with this stress anymore. Um, and a lot of that stress, it's not the street. I'll repeat that. A lot of stress is not the street. It's from the administration. That's where most of the problems come from. Oh, wow. Huh. Interesting. I was going to ask you, what do you think is, uh, you know, some of the, one of the biggest or some of the biggest misconceptions about being a beat cop, just, you know, particularly based on how cops are viewed in, uh, you know, the news media, film, TV, et cetera. Well, the number one misconception is that we don't care. And part of this is self-inflicted. I I say this all the time as a police officer, when I was active, I was not allowed to talk to the media. All right. So we had public information officers that do that as a street cop. You're not allowed to because, and I get it, the the city and they use a term again, we're conferred to counties and states as well uh, and federal government as well. They don't want people clotting up their message. All right. 
what the, a lot of these departments do is remember we had back in the day all the lip sync police videos and dancing cop videos that were supposed <laughs> to uh, really help connect with the community and show a different light. What what happened? What what good did they do? Because here's the problem: we don't turn around and celebrate when officers deliver babies. We don't turn around and celebrate when officers pull people out of burning homes and save their lives. We don't celebrate when an, a, a cop does something like changing a flat tire. We don't promote that sort of stuff. We've relied on the news media to tell our stories for too long. And even back in the day, they were really bad at it. Now it is so biased. It's not even close to truth. And here's the reason why, Gerard, the news media is not required to give you facts. Repeat that. It's not required to give you facts. Their job is to get more people to read their newspaper read their social media posts, watch their news. And the way you do that is the old saying in Baltimore is if it bleeds, it leads, referring to the Baltimore Sun, the newspaper. Right. Mm -hmm. If you can create controversy, you'll get people to pay more attention. You'll increase your distribution of your show or your paper, whatever it might be, and you'll get higher advertising rates. And therefore, you ensure that you get more money and you do better. That's the goal of what we call news which used to mean North, East, West, and South. I don't know where news came from, but it really most of the time is not news. And, and we'll just, I'll, I'll close on this. We watched like the different cable news channels and the different uh, network news channels. When I was a kid, George, I'm a lot older than you. We had three TV stations and UHF. When I was a kid too. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what you had. And they did a pretty good job of giving the news. Now you got 24-hour news channels and you watch these shows and all they are is opinion and speculation. They're not even news-based. They're not even fact-based. They're just like, what do you think about if if so-and-so did this? Right. Or, you know, what if that were true? It, it's, it's A lot of it is also planting seeds of doubt. Exactly. It's creating controversy. So we've, we've created this ourselves by uh, not having a platform to tell our stories. And Well, isn't that what you're doing? <laughs> I, that's part of what I do. And when I post a photo of a cop changing someone's tire, people say, oh, that's copaganda. That's a new term. Cop- oh, that's <laughs> copaganda. I'm like, well, because if you're going to go into presenting what happened in Minneapolis and show what happened elsewhere that was good, can you balance it out a little bit? Just a little. You know, there's that saying, one bad apple spoils the bunch. Look, I make it a point to when I see cops uh, uh, just milling about there. There's a place uh, next to where I live, uh, near where I live called Bodega and cops love to, to come here and eat. It has delicious Mexican food. And so, you know, if they're just there chilling, I'll just tell them, hey, by the way, thank you for your service. And sometimes they just look so shocked that anyone would take the time and they really appreciate it. And I could because and I think sometimes people need to hear that because uh, of what you're saying, which is that there there is this view you, you've, you've highlighted some inst- instances. So, do, so does your website of, of uh, police misconduct. It happens, but you shouldn't paint a broad brush. And they need to be dealt with appropriately, quickly, right. either right. fired and or prosecuted criminally if the, if the law allows it. That's what needs to be done. And by the way, when I was a rookie, we didn't tolerate this stuff. I don't know of anybody who does and never did. Um, so... There's so many incidents. Let's do a count. I can think of five incidents 
in the last couple, three years that have been horrific regarding police. That's five out of what millions a year. Well, obviously, I don't I don't know the statistics on that. But what but I, what I do know for sure is that when you watch the media and this is exactly what you're saying, when you watch the media, you, that's why I took such a long pause. <laughs> when you watch the media, it that that just seems to be impossible. It seems like uh, those instances happen on an almost daily basis. Right. Right. And, and the media. And by the way, this is something I learned in, in radio. Every format you're in is designed to, to appeal to a certain audience. Uh, so we look at the news media, they do the same thing, uh, especially the cable channels. And we look at social media, it does the same thing. Uh, and one of the things that happens, I heard from a cousin of a friend who had this happen, so therefore it's true. And people react to it. Quite often, if we look at the newspaper, the headlines will will start with the worst case scenario, the end of the story. Police officer shoots man. That's what the headline will say. And right away, it sounds horrible. You read in the article towards the bottom, all the things that occurred that justified why that officer had to shoot him. Right. Well, yeah, they're trying to entice you to read it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, okay. so let me I want to from a more practical perspective, I'm very curious as to how you uh, think that policing has changed over the years in one particular instance, I mean, in one particular uh, way, which is all the stuff. Every time I see a cop running on TV and just the jangle jangle of all the stuff they have to carry, is it extremely heavy? I mean, how do you, yes. how, you, you must have to be in shape and has it gotten heavier over, over the years? I don't know. I, I know that some of the agencies are going to what they call load supporting vests, where they put uh, all their gear there and it distributes it more evenly than the uh, old gun belt thing, which we had. So between the gun belt, the the radio, uh, our S-Pan tune, as we called it in Baltimore, and also our soft body armor, generally you weighed about 20 pounds more than you did your natural weight. Wow. And then in the wintertime, we had the old, we called the old woolen reefer coats, and they were another 10 pounds. So in winter gear, you were easily 30 pounds heavier than you normally were. And you drove around in these old beat up cars. And the first thing, the most common injury was back injuries. But to, to answer your question, I hated running after people. Uh, and I would get so angry that you made me run after you. I would not give in. And the vast majority of people, what they'll do is they'll run for a while, then they'll hide. So as soon as you lose sight of the person, you stop what you're doing and you start looking around. They're usually hiding somewhere right around there. But the worst job ever was chasing people on railroad tracks. For some reason, that is is exhausting. So is it heavier now? I don't know. I think it's distributed a little more evenly than it was before. But the, the weight factor alone is still not good. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, you, you mentioned the cops near you eating a bodega. Well, we we rarely ever got to eat lunch. And when we did, it was usually at a fast food place or a restaurant or a gas station convenience store. And you got a donut or a cup of coffee and a, and a hot dog, whatever. And you try to shove them down your throat as quick as you could. And the, the squares, and I'm using this as a air quote, back in the day, were the guys who I say, guys, that's men and women who brought their own lunch. Like, oh, <laughs> you know, who's got time for that Mr. Green Jeans kind of stuff? <laughs> they fared much better physically than we did. 
Right. I was about to say the, the fast food and the, the donuts, uh, not, not too great for the stamina there. No, it's not. <laughs> and after a while, you, you can come on a job in really great shape, uh, but you don't get to train unless you do it in your own time, which I used to do a lot of. And then, except for the, the SWAT or QRT teams, there was no paid training. So you wind up getting in worse and worse shape. And you pull eight, nine, 10, some jobs are doing 12, 14 hour shifts now. And that adrenaline thing is up and down, up and down, up and down. And stress releases a substance called cortisol, which can affect your mental health. And I'm not an expert in that, but all that stuff combined, you see them come on the job and within three, four years, they're like falling apart. They look like a sad sack all of a sudden. Uh, well, one piece of equipment that we have uh, more and more these days, which we didn't have back in the day, is body cams. Uh, good or bad, John? I think it's great. Uh, I'll tell you this right now. Body cameras, if we had them when I was policing, it would eliminated 99.9% of every complaint against me for discourtesy. Because the number one rule when you arrested a drug dealer in Baltimore, all the drug attorneys would say, and I'm this not against attorneys, make a complaint of excessive force and discourtesy because the department never, ever did anything about it. So can you pause right there for a second? So by discourtesy, does that just mean being impolite or is it more than that? I mean, being using cursing, is it cursing at someone? Is it? What well, is it? we we're training was called verbal judo. So we cursed a lot uh, because you do everything you could to try to talk someone down from the potential for using physical force. So sometimes you'd have to use colorful language. So that was a thing. The the vast majority of complaints with discourtesy was because, oh, that officer cursed or he wasn't happy. Or here's the one I loved. He didn't look nice. So those things would have been dealt with and meet and say the video would show that never occurred. That never happened. Uh, but the problem with that is most departments don't then turn around and charge that person with a false report. Uh, so they're they're free to make complaints. It's part of the game. What I did have a big concern with in the very early days of body cameras is that it would take away some discretion from street officers. So, for example, if you didn't want to arrest someone for, uh, back then it was highly illegal, marijuana possession, simple, tiny bit of marijuana, you would probably throw it on the ground, grind it up your foot and and kick it into the gutter uh, and let them go with a warning. So my big concern was that took away from street discretion for those officers. Uh, that doesn't seem to be an issue as much as it was in the early days. Interesting. Okay. All right. That's that's a that's a great perspective. I love that. Thank you. Um, now I, I want to do a complete shift to something that I love that you obviously completely love as well, which is podcasting, my friend. So you've done over 500 episodes. You started your podcast in 2017. You know, you've, you've developed so much experience in the field that you're now even a podcasting instructor. So I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about the genre. And, and the first thing I want to ask you is, what do you think are the ingredients of making a successful podcast? Boom. The first one that many, many people seem to miss out on is you've got to invite your listener. Uh, you've got to give them something in return for their time. See, a, a podcast, people have to search you out. It's not like they find you by accident. It's not like my car radio. My wife drives my car. She changes the channel. I get in and go, oh, I like this right. station. What right. is this? So it's a little bit different. With a podcast, you've got to realize that – People are usually investing something they can never replace, which is their time. 
no matter what you have in life, you can buy, you can earn more, you can do a lot of things, but you can't create more time. Especially the older I get, the more I realize how fleeting time is. So, what most podcasters don't do is they don't focus on the listener and the topics of what gets the listener's attention. Why would they want to listen to you and your show? What they focus on is myself and my guest. Hey, my guest today is an expert in this. Guess what, Gerard? 99.9% of the people in the world don't care. There's <laughs> uh, an old saying that, that I like a lot. It's, I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. People are naturally <laughs> self-centered. They're concerned about themselves, their family, their bills. Will I get a vacation this year? Is my teenage son going to be okay? Whatever it might be. So you got to give them something. They say, this is what you're going to get out of this transaction. If you invest 30 minutes of your time, you're going to get this. And that's where most podcasters miss the boat entirely. I think that one thing that really draws me in uh, to the podcast that I really enjoy listening to are stories. So give me an example of a story that, that you came across on your podcast that obviously you would have not heard before that truly, truly inspired you. And, and you thought to yourself, when, when that interview was done, you thought to yourself, damn, this was so worth it. Well, there's several, and usually they caught me out of that field. Uh, what I thought would be the really big home runs were not. Uh, so one would be the the retired Auburndale, Florida police officer who was shot multiple times and, and almost killed. Her story was so profound, uh, and the fact that she survived and struggled afterwards uh, left an indelible mark on me. So much so that we we are friends on uh, social media, and I follow her all the time, and and periodically I'll call her and say, "I hope you're doing okay." Stories where uh, a spouse of a police officer was killed in line of duty and their children had to find a way to live their lives afterwards in spite of were really inspiring. Uh, I had a guy on who uh, was military. He was special forces. He was in the Battle of Mogadishu, also known as Black Hawk Down. And he spent an entire career in the military and did fine, like most of us, until he retired and, and I always say until it gets quiet. And then he started struggling. His story was so profound. It moved me because it showed that we can build the kind of life we want. One of the most profound stories is there's so many I could pick from. And it'd be cliche to say all of them because uh, there's some are, are better than others. But there was a, a, a woman who was sexually abused for six years as a child by a sibling. And she told her story. And when she talked about how she built a life afterwards in spite of uh, is profound. Uh, there were so many stories like that that are deeply inspiring because if someone can go through that and find a way to create some level of happiness for themselves, then I can too. Right, right. And and I've 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 seen you quoted as saying um, part of the secret to podcasting is entertaining first and then informing. Right. Through what medium do you share your you know, podcast expertise with people uh, as an instructor? Is that done online? I mean, how, how do you go about doing that? I do a lot of that in Clubhouse, the, the social audio drop-in app. Uh, that's oh, right. where I, that's how you I met my sister, right? Yeah, that's where I met. I met Jemmy, and by the way, we're like twenty minutes away. Um, so I met her on there a couple of years ago. But that's where I do most of it, uh, and, and I've I fully embraced the role that I'm going to say things that a lot of people don't like because the so-called experts that are they're lining their pockets off of other people say something different. Um, and I, I tell them it's not, that's not the case. That's not been the case for me. 
The entertain first, informed second is something that was taught to me from the early days of broadcasting school. And every program director I had in radio told me that. So my proving ground is radio, music radio. When you've got two minutes to, to say everything you need to say, and you know your beginning, you know your end, and you know what the break's going to be about, you've always got to realize that you've got to create entertainment in two minutes, not just inform. Because if you inform first, it's a lecture. And most people don't voluntarily attend lectures unless they're getting something out of it. When it comes to a podcast, unless it's a how to make a million dollars or how to change the the window in your GMC Yukon, people don't want to be lectured to. They want to be entertained. And then you start slipping in some information. Right. Well, what's the what's the number one thing you get out of podcasting, John? The number one thing I got, I was giving a platform for other people to tell their stories. And that's also the biggest source of contention for me because I have so many people that come, they approach me through publicists and they're the bane of my existence that say, oh, my client wrote this book and he wants to talk about this book. And I'm like, or his expertise in software systems. I, I Look, I tell people this is not an expertise show. A lot of experts come on and we will promote that towards the end. However, if they don't have a personal story to tell that fits to our format, it's not happening. And the one thing I would tell people is be absolutely ruthless about protecting your format. Excellent. Excellent. So we're going to we're going to make sure people know how to find you on on Clubhouse, et cetera. And, and we'll get to, to all of that in a minute. But before we close, I have a couple of random questions to ask you, this is this is this is me taking my liberties as as the host because these are questions are for me. Fire away, brother! <laughs> All right. Uh, first, I want to ask you a question. I'm going to purposefully ask this pretty broadly um, because it's been getting so much attention over the past few years. Even though I understand that every jurisdiction and every police department has different rules of engagement, but as a general matter, in your opinion, when do you think there's a clear cut case of a justified shooting of someone who is unarmed? Well, the, the, the incident end of my career was with a so-called unarmed man. And he was unarmed until he made a play for my service weapon while still in my hand. And every shot was fired. And I thought I sprained my wrist. I wound up having multiple surgeries and steel plates put in my hand and was retired at the age of 33. So the unarmed man, at what point were they unarmed and what point were they armed? The rule of thumb for me is very simple. And we used a motto back in the day. I'd rather be trod by 12 than carried by six. If I, and this guy who, who tried to shoot me in the face with my gun, who was unarmed, and I'm air quoting, because that's what the news media would say, I had a distinct thought that came to my mind. And my, I, I thought, and I'll remember this in my dying day, this guy's trying to kill me. I'm going to die, but it's not going to be tonight. And it won't be because of anything he does. And if I have to plant him to live, I'll do just that. So, okay. So you just, you just gave me a, a real world scenario that I had never, never thought of, which is someone who's unarmed who reaches uh, for your gun. Can you think of another example that you've seen? Well, I'd, I'd say this, the vast majority of people, the most vast majority of police that are shot are shot with their own weapon. Oh, what? What? Yes, they're shot with their own weapon. That's what a lot of people don't talk about. See, there's a wrestling incident and- uh, wrestling. Here's a big problem. Let's be brutally honest. When I was a, a cop, we had- a big nightstick, we called an S-Pantoon because the way we used it. And it served two purposes. One, it kept people at a distance from you because it was always in your non-gun hand. So, and if you needed to use it to 
subdue someone, you could. Well, a lot of the so-called politicians didn't like the way that looked. So they relied on mace and tasers or pepper spray and tasers before the weapon. The rule of thumb is this. We told this saying about mace. It only works on innocent bystanders and police. It never works on the person you intended to. Tasers are not known to work all the time. I don't have specifics on them. But when you limit those, and now we turn into just wrestling fests and and grappling, then you got a situation where someone has equal access to your weapon. If they punch you on the chin, Gerard, and it's, it doesn't matter if they're smaller than you, they could be luckier, crazier, stronger than you, it's lights out. And once you're knocked out, if they get your gun, quite often you're dead. Uh, and a perfect example of that was Sean Collier, the MIT police officer with the Boston Marathon Bombers. They fought and tried to get his weapon, but they shot and killed him for it. Wow. And he was just a college cop. No, that's not supposed to happen. In MIT, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he was in a marked car in uniform, and he was a target. Uh, so that's the, the thing that people need to understand. That person makes a play for your weapon, it changes the scenario. The last thing is we had a rule of thumb that you could f- shoot in Baltimore, and every, every jurisdiction is different, every state's different. You could shoot in Baltimore when it's protect your life or the life of someone else and physical safety of someone else or a convicted fleeing felon of the dangerous type. So let's say, for example, someone committed a murder just in front of you and they're running and you can't catch them. Then you're, you got a justified shooting. However, quite often most cops wouldn't do that because that was, that was a burden they didn't want to bear. They just didn't want to do it. You got my head spinning, John. Okay. Um, on a totally unrelated note and, and lighter note, here's, here's another random question for you. Today just happens to be 420. So do you think, in your opinion, do you think it makes the lives of law enforcement officers easier or harder when marijuana is legal or illegal? Uh, I don't really care. I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. I, I'm a sober guy. I've been sober 31 years. So if someone thinks that marijuana is going to solve their problems, go for it. Right. I don't think it makes it easier or any tougher. As a matter of fact, I would say that back in the, the 80s, we had a huge heroin problem in Baltimore. And then we had crack co- cocaine come in and that changed the landscape. And now heroin's a huge problem in opioids in the Baltimore area as well. Marijuana has never been a big issue. However, every time I was shot at, I'd say two of the four times I was shot at was by marijuana dealers. The reason I was asking the question is because I was thinking, okay, if marijuana is legal, it's one less thing to worry about, one less thing for, you know, gangs to fight about, one less thing for, you know, you have to arrest people for. I just thought it would make life easier. Well, I think it would. Um, it, it certainly does. Again, to be totally honest with you, it was never a high priority in our department uh, because it's in the pecking order of things. It just not, was not a big issue. Uh, marijuana ranked very low on the what they called CDS controlled dangerous substance scales. Heroin, PCP, cocaine, crack cocaine, they all had a bigger role and they had more devastation on communities than marijuana did. Um, so I don't think it makes any difference to be totally honest with Gerard as far as use goes um, for our police. For those who want to use it, Look, more power to you. But for all these people who tell me that, uh, oh, it cures everything, 
uh, I'm not buying it. They're snake oil salesmen, the same as they were in the old Wild West, if you ask me. Okay. All right. Excellent. So the the, the other thing I'm very curious to, to hear, and I'm, I'm going to apologize ahead of time because I'm sure you've been asked this a billion times, uh, but I'm, I'm curious to know what uh, your answer is, particularly because of the recent death of Michael Kenneth Williams, one of my favorite actors of all time. I'm currently watching him in uh, Boardwalk Empire. Mm, but he's as, so good in that. Yeah. So good. But he, but you, you and I both know the role that made him super famous was 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 in The Wire, playing Omar in The Wire. So when I say The Wire, you're you, you're a former Baltimore police sergeant. When I say The Wire, what are your thoughts? They do a really good job of taking the personality traits of five, six, seven or eight people and, and meshing them into one. It's, it's very entertaining. Uh, there's some elements of truth to it. There's a lot of fantasy involved. To be totally honest with you, and I know a lot of Baltimore police love The Wire because it brought some fame to that city. <laughs> I, I don't hold the same opinion because what the, the, the film doesn't show is the absolute desperation that people live in. Uh, and that's the thing that they, they just want to focus on one small element of the society. One of the things I, I could talk to my wife about uh, Baltimore, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have the information in front of me. They just did a recent test of Baltimore City Schools and Baltimore City Schools. I think they said 97 percent of the children between grades three and eight could not pass basic mathematic proficiency. Ninety seven percent. Hot damn. And that school system is the most expensive per student in the state. Oh, my God. And all the millions and millions, if not billions of dollars have been invested in, in neighborhoods like Sandtown and Winchester and Northwest Baltimore and Western Baltimore. Nothing's changed. Why has nothing changed? And all this money has been so-called earmarked for these areas. Who's pocketing this money? And how come they're not being audited? And how come we're not doing anything about it? It aggravates me to be, it aggravates me to no end, Gerard, because we, in Baltimore, and I'm sure many, many American cities are like this, I know people that have had two or three sons murdered and other ones in prison. And you got to ask yourself, why? Why is this a, a common problem? And a film, The Wire, doesn't address that. It does a good job of certain aspects of it, but the vast majority of the real issues they don't talk about. And it's not an issue just confined to Baltimore. It's many American cities. And we need to ask ourselves this simple question. If the people were electing repeatedly over and over and over again to do this, to solve these problems, don't. When are we going to hold them accountable? Because people's lives are at stake. Yep. Unfortunately, it's not just in Baltimore. I mean, you're, 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 uh, you're describing a really extreme case, but unfortunately, it's like that in several cities uh, in this country. Uh, something needs to be done. Uh, so, listen, let's let's end on a light note. We've 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 covered so much ground here, and I really appreciate your your candor and uh, your experience, John. It's 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 uh, I'm I'm going to leave this interview thinking about so many different things. But one thing I also want to know for our uh, fresh mix listeners: where is your favorite place to go in Florida? Oh, there's several. Key West. I love Key West because 
Number one, you can't stand out in a crowd down there. You could be the guy who walks around with a toilet seat on your head all day, and people are like, oh, there's Joe the toilet seat guy. They just don't care. Every walk of life is there. You'll hear every language in the world spoken on Duval Street. I love Key West for that reason. It reminds me a lot of uh, New Orleans and and Bourbon Street. It does. It's got a lot of the same architecture, everything else, uh, and it's a a laid-back attitude and atmosphere, which I like a lot. Another place I really like in Florida – uh, there's several, but one that impressed my wife and I, because it doesn't seem like you're in Florida, is a town called Mount Dora, which is northwest of Orlando, rolling hills, big lakes, live oak trees. You swear you're in New England, uh, and it's just a very relaxed vibe. Micanopy's another one. I love St. Augustine, but the thing is, I'm liking Stewart and uh Vero Beach, Indian River, those counties more and more. Palm Beach, Broward, and Miami is losing its luster, as far as I'm concerned. It's just it's too congested, too rude, and too many people. You know what? I wish I could disagree because I live in South Beach, but uh, but I can't. <laughs> I, I knew you would know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I can't disagree at all. Name the last time you went to South Beach on a Saturday or Sunday and had a relaxing cup of coffee and thinking, ah, oh, it's okay. I love where I'm at. And you're like <laughs> not having to have your head on a swivel all, all the time. Yeah, no, I, I I hear you, brother. I hear you. So, listen, do you have any events or anything else coming up that you want to promote while you're here with me on the mic? Well, I did uh, PodFest Global recently. I'm supposed to be speaking at a podcast, I think it's Podcast Movement, in uh, the summertime in Denver. That hasn't been confirmed yet. Um, and hopefully I'll be doing PodFest in person as well when the next event comes. Yes, I'll be there. So I'll, Good. We, we can meet in person. I, I would love that. Um, I do a lot on Clubhouse. And uh, here's the thing, Gerard, a lot of people put a lot of time and effort into creating a show or creating a podcast. And they don't realize there's things they can do to get much, much, much better at what you do. You can have the world's best podcast, but if no one listens to it, it doesn't really exist. So you got to always work on uh, getting people to discover your show. Right, right. Great advice. And where can people catch you and follow you on social media? We, you, we've got Clubhouse. What, what, what's, your, what's your handle on Clubhouse and where else can they find you? Well, Clubhouse, just look for L-E-T Radio Show or John J. Wiley. Uh, that's the easiest way. My website is letradio.com. That's where the law enforcement show resides. It's one of the locations. Uh, so you can contact me there as well. Um, all over social media, Facebook is the number one priority for me. Uh, so look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook, and you're sure to contact me there as well. I'm on all the other platforms. LinkedIn is probably second. For me, uh, Facebook, the other ones, I'm there. Uh, if you send me a DM, I'll reply with, here's my email address, because I'll be honest with you, Gerard, I can't keep track of all those messages. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, listen, I, I, I feel like I could talk to you forever, especially because this is a topic that I know very little about. Um, and and you've got such a breadth of experience and opinions, and you're so uh, refreshingly honest. Listen, I just wanted to Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm I'm so happy that my sister, uh, producer Jemmy, linked us up, and I can understand why she was so insistent and and happy to have you on the show. And just thank you, thank you, thank you so much, John, for sharing your thoughts. I, it's really much appreciated. My pleasure, and thank you very much for what you do.
I mean, I can't say enough about how much I appreciated the interview with uh, John J. Wiley. I mean, I learned so much in this short interview about a topic I know very little about. Uh, as I mentioned in the interview, you know, I just don't have a lot of experience one on one with like p- police officers and knowing them personally. Um, and I don't know, en- en- you know, a ton about the profession in and of itself. Uh, some things really struck me. Uh, in particular, I just really was dismayed and for good reason about all of the, the, the issues he raised with respect to mental health and the, the reasons for that in this particular profession. And, you know, his analogy of it, it's kind of like throwing pebbles in a backpack, you know, every single time you see something when you're uh, on the beat, uh, something disturbing, or just how these different experiences, um, you know, that are real world harrowing experiences can affect you little by little. And you keep throwing the pebbles in the backpack one by one, eventually that bag is going to break. And I was also very surprised at the disincentives uh, as a cop to address mental health through your police department because of certain administrative realities, you know, because of civil liability, et cetera. And he admitted that, you know, if you do go through your police department, maybe the counselor that you're going to get might not even be the best. So, but the positive thing I really drew from this was the great advice he gave, which is, you know, you decide to become a cop, get out ahead of it, make sure you find yourself someone who is qualified and good, hopefully recommended by someone else who's trained, well-trained in trauma and see them at last once in a year from the jump. As soon as you get that badge, get that therapist, right? So I, I just thought that was great, positive advice. Um, Another thing that struck me, uh, that surprised me a little bit was his opinion on body cams, particularly because it seems like such a controversial issue, the way it's portrayed in the media. And we talked a lot about the media in this, uh, in this interview, but he's, he's all for it. And, you know, cause I've never understood, you know, from the public's perspective, we want body cams because we want to keep police officers and uh, we want to keep them honest and we want to have a way to rather than this he said she said you know show the video right and from his perspective it's the same thing and i just thought that that was really refreshing and and hopeful so let's get more body cams out there folks right and then the last thing i'd i'd say that um really struck me was his view on one side of an issue that we don't really talk about either, uh, at least not in the media too much. Shootings of unarmed suspects uh, or unarmed persons, depending on the situation. He gave examples that I would have never thought of, where you might think to yourself, okay, that seems reasonable. It's, it's either him or me in that situation, right? And uh, I never thought about someone reaching for your gun. I never knew, according to uh, John Jay, that most cops are shot with their own guns, you know, and as a nerd, I'm, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to look that up and do a fact check. Everybody, everybody that knows me knows that I, I, I I'm a huge fact checker to, to a very annoying degree. But these are all perspectives that I thought were, you know, were refreshing perspectives on uh, a side of an issue that I've mostly seen one side of, right? Um, so as an intellectual and as someone to, you know, who's really deeply interested in how the world can work better and how the lives of people can be made better, I just thought that that was a very valuable uh, perspective from him. And then I, I have to take a second to give a shout out to Glenn the Geek 
who is uh, what I call the Michael Jordan of podcasting, whom I interviewed in episode 47. And he's also a great friend of my sister's and a uh, great friend of the uh, Le Gagnier family. And he stressed the importance uh, in all of his podcasting prowess, the importance of entertaining first. You got to entertain your audience. And John Jay really echoed that sentiment when he said, entertain first, teach later. I love getting podcasting advice from giants in the industry. So thank you so much, John Jay, for all that great podcasting advice. And hopefully, the longer I do this, I can internalize these great nuggets of advice and get even better at what I do for you, for you. All right. So thank you so much for listening in. And I look forward to having you there to listen in on the next episode of Florida's Fresh Mix Podcast. For details and show notes about today's show and our guest, go to freshmixpodcast.com. The Florida Podcast Network has a closed Facebook group exclusively for super fans of their shows. Just search for FPN Insiders on Facebook to leave us comments, get early scoops, contests, and other special treats. Or you can just complain about how Florida starts to rain in the summer in the afternoons. You better get your stuff done in the morning or else it's going to rain on you at some point. And when it rains, I guarantee you it's not going to last for more than 5-10 minutes. So it just rains on you for no reason. And then the sun comes out. Anyways, be sure to visit all the great shows on the Florida Podcast Network at floridapodcastnetwork.com. Keep catching who's fresh in the Florida mix with Florida's Fresh Mix Podcast. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.